Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. We'll be in Revelation 21 today. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. I love that verse. Love it. What comes to mind when you hear the word heaven? What do, you, what do you think of? Do you, do you think of streets of gold, shiny places, heavenly creatures? Do you think of this large multitude gathered around, standing and singing to God? Or do you think of clouds with us all kind of resting comfortably on like inflatable couches? looking at each other, staring at each other? Or do you just draw a blank? Heaven. And really nothing comes to mind. What do you, what do you think of? I mean, I've, I've met very few people who don't want to go to heaven. That's honestly, you know, that's one of those questions. Uh, raise your hand if you'd like to go to heaven. And Everybody raises their hand. It's a great evangelism strategy, right? Uh, if you'd like to go to heaven, raise your hand and pray this prayer. Oh, wow, look at all the decisions. Well, who's going to go? No, I would rather go to hell, right? I mean, everybody wants to go to heaven. But the reality is, is that Christians and people in our culture all across the globe really have different opinions and thoughts about heaven. People talk about it. Even unbelievers talk about it. My, my favorite comic strip through the years, The Far Side, I don't know if there's any Far Side fans in here, but, but Larson, he had his opinions of heaven. Here's a, a couple for you to see this morning. One, here's the cloud guy. I wish I'd have brought a magazine, right? Just kind of sitting there. Maybe that's your picture of heaven. Uh, this one is in honor of Pastor Scott, where uh, he kind of captured the whole heaven and hell idea. Heaven, welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. Uh, in hell, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. <laughs> all right. So we have all kinds of different views of heaven. Now, he doesn't play the accordion, I don't think. Do you play the accordion? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. He's learning, yeah. By next Christmas. Okay. Um, we have all sorts of ideas and thoughts and beliefs about heaven. Maybe, maybe it's something you long for. Maybe it's something you don't. Maybe you would identify with C.S. Lewis's words in Mere Christianity, when he, he wrote this, he said, most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again with old friends who have died. So as long as I, I get to see my loved ones who I'm lost, I, I want to go to heaven? Maybe, maybe if you're really honest and truthful this morning, you would say, you know, I, I I kind of find myself primarily thinking about this world. There's a lot of things I enjoy here. There are a lot of people I enjoy being around. There's things that I'm really hopeful to be a part of. Maybe that's kind of where your mindset is. Well, the reality is that heaven 
really should be something that we long for, really should be something that, that stirs our affections, that, that spurs us on, that fills us with great anticipation. It should be something along the lines of, of what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, it becomes us, it's, it's wise for us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Or Martin Luther, he, he, he once said, I would not give one moment of heaven for all the joy and riches of the world, even if it lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Edwards, Edwards was saying, why would we not? subordinate everything in life to our pursuit of heaven, to where we are headed, to where we are journeying toward. Why don't we put everything in order around that? And Luther is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I wouldn't trade one moment, one second, just boom, I'm in heaven, just that moment. I wouldn't trade that for thousands of years of whatever it is I might enjoy in this life. Or you think of the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Philippians, when he writes Philippians, and he's in Philippians 1, he's telling of his time in prison. What does he say? He says, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I don't know if I'll, I'll live or die. I, I don't know if I'll continue in faithful, fruitful ministry with you or if this is my end. But what does he say? But for, to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul says, I, I may continue on in faithful ministry. I, I enjoy this life. It's not that I just have this longing to die, but I recognize and I understand that if I die, it's gain. It's gain. I, I gain Christ. But again, we don't always share these sentiments, do we? We don't always resonate with those times. We like the world. We have things we enjoy. We have family. We have hobbies that we find it hard to even imagine leaving behind. I was studying just several months back, and the my times of study brought me kind of in, in two spots. One was 1 Corinthians 9, and Paul talks about how He's running the race and talks about how the runner doesn't run as though just he runs aimlessly, but he, he runs for a crown. He runs for the prize. And Paul says, but we're not just running for this perishable prize like a, a runner in a, in a marathon or a, or a 5K or a 100-meter dash. We're running for an imperishable crown. And as I studied that and was thinking through it, I turned to Colossians 3 that we read earlier where, where Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have new life in Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life, Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As I, as I read and I studied those things, I was just reminded of how often it is that God brings me around to particularly Colossians 3, and, and when he does, he often has to rebuke me and remind me, Todd, why are you set so focused on the things of the world? 
Lift your gaze. Lift your gaze. The trials of life that can weigh you down, the concerns of life, the pleasures of life that can distract God. God wants us to set our gaze on Him. Set our minds on things above. And I was reminded that that Paul often referred to this. Paul often talked about his his longing for heaven and how, how heaven set before him influenced the way he lived his life. For Paul, heaven wasn't a a passing joke. It wasn't just a comic strip. It wasn't something that he only thought about when he walked into a a time of mourning and a funeral. No, for Paul, heaven and the inheritance that awaits God's people was ever before him. It influenced how he lived his life. 1 Corinthians 9.24, I already mentioned, he describes it as an imperishable wreath that he runs after. In Philippians 3, 14, he he said that it was the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that motivated him. In 1 Timothy 4, 8, as he penned his final letter to Timothy, what was it that he brought to mind? He was comforted as death loomed large. The door was opening to eternity for him, and he was comforted knowing that the crown of righteousness awaited him. Paul had an eternal gaze. He lived aware of the world around him. He had one eye set on the world around him, but he had one eye set above. He was constantly living in the the already and and in the not yet. He was looking above. He lived with eternity in view. And as we begin this series this morning on heaven, and, and we'll be in this for eight or nine weeks, as we, as we go through this series on heaven, my prayer, my hope is that we would gain a heavenly perspective, that we would gain this longing for eternity, that we would live in light of eternity, that we would live with our gaze set upward and not merely looking at the world around us. And there's, there's five reasons. You don't have to write these down, but there's kind of five reasons I think it's helpful for us to come to this study. One is it'll clear up misunderstanding and misinformation about heaven. That, that, that's present both in the church and in culture. What heaven is? How do you get there? What will it be like? There's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misinformation. So to clear that up. The second thing it, it'll do is I, I pray that it'll strengthen our faith for today. That it, as as, as a result of thinking about eternal things and about heaven and, and what God has in store for His people, that our faith will be steadied and strengthened and, and, and bulked up. But it will also provide hope for tomorrow. We live in uncertain days and uncertain times. But we know the end. So it should provide hope for tomorrow. Fourthly, it will give comfort and peace as we journey through times of grief and sorrow. And fifth, it will clarify the end to which we run as believers. Where are we running to? Now before we get into Revelation 21, I'll make two two comments. Just two kind of, I don't know, disclaimers I guess I'll say. Uh, This study, one is that as we go through the study on heaven, we will maintain our stance of sola scriptura. That it is scripture alone by which our authority is. That we will build a view of heaven not on the opinions of man or on bestsellers, 
One of the worst things you can probably do is find a bestseller on somebody's experience of heaven. We're not doing that. We submit to the authority of Scripture, and Scripture will always trump man's experience, and so we will look at the Word of God to walk through this study. The second one, to the disappointment of some of you in here, and I'm sure I'll hear about this after the service, and that's fine. My goal in this study is not to decipher and declare what end-time view is correct. This isn't a study of millennial views. I'm sorry if you were looking forward to that disappointment at hand, and you can tell me how disappointed you are later. We're looking at the end time, what awaits in glory. Now, Revelation, many of you may have known, I I know several of you just enjoy the book. It is a a fascinating book. It's an amazing book. We get a a glimpse of, of things that are beyond our imagination that God revealed to John. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and as he was exiled, as he was in prison there, he receives a revelation from the Lord, a glimpse into heaven, an extended, really an extended glimpse, the longest one we have in Scripture of what is going on in the heavenlies, what the end will be. Now, I've always held to, there, there's a lot in Revelation, I'll confess to you, there's a lot of Rev, in Revelation I don't understand. Now, I think if, if someone's honest, there's, most of us should say that. There's a lot we don't understand there. Here's what we do understand from Revelation. Christ is victorious. Jesus wins. And so there may be debates on how various things are translated, but we can't debate the fact that Jesus wins, that he is high and exalted, he is lifted up, that God, uh, God prevails. And so we understand that, we see that in the book of Revelation. As we come to Revelation 21, contextually, in, in Revelation 19, if you just flip back, you probably have some headings in your scripture, but we see in Revelation 19, the rejoicing that we find in heaven. We have a description of the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, the marriage supper, the lamb, it's called. And then in verses 11 down to the end of the chapter, I think 11 through 16 to me has always been this unbelievable paragraph of Scripture, as we often think of Jesus meek and mild, this kind of nice, peaceful Jesus. And in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, we have a whole different picture of Jesus. He comes riding on a white horse, right, with King of kings and Lord of lords inscribed upon his thigh, waging war and meeting out the full fury of the wrath of God Almighty upon the nations. We turn to Revelation 20 and We hear the thousand years, the millennium described, a topic of great debate among Christians. What does it mean? What does it look like? We read in verses 7 through 10, the defeat of Satan, that he is defeated. We don't live in this everlasting struggle of an equal evil and equal good, and golly, which one's going to win? We just hope God's strong enough to beat evil. No, that's not the case. Satan is and will be finally defeated. We read that here. Then verse 11 through 15 of chapter 20 tells of the great judgment. The books are opened. The books that Daniel referred to. The book of life and the books of judgment. And then we come to our text today, Revelation 21. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to focus on 5 through 8. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. They are, they're done away with. They're, they're over. They're finished. In verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We have there in the, the first four verses the description of the new heaven and the new earth, which God will bring about in the end of days. And we have this beautiful statement in verse 3 that the dwelling place of God is with man. You can just keep this in the back of your head, but when was the last time that was the case? We'll answer that question in a bit. We will return to an intimate physical relationship that was once enjoyed between God and man. And in verse 4, he says the former things have passed away. Sin and its consequences are no more. They're gone. The new has come. And so what we're going to do the remainder of our time this morning is we're going to kind of do a zoom in, zoom out. We're going to zoom in on Revelation 21, 5 through 8, and, and kind of study that, and unpack it a little bit. What, is it, what does it mean? What is, what is God revealing to us? What is he showing us through his word here? And after we do that, we're going to zoom back out and look at what's the main point. We start this series on heaven. What is the main point? Why are we looking at Revelation 21, 5 through 8, the next to last chapter in Scripture, and we're thinking about heaven and beginning the series. Shouldn't we kind of build towards that? Well, we'll look at why we're here this morning. But let's look first into Revelation 21, 5 through 8. Verse 5 begins by saying, he who is seated on the throne. This is a, a reference to, to God, and, and God makes a very strong declaration here. What does he say? Be- behold, I am making all things new. Right? I am making all things new. The creator of all things will recreate what has been marred by sin. We see here understanding that, that God is, is not like the one who, whose car gets in a, you, just get, you have a wreck and their car is destroyed and, and he just kind of leaves it uh, in the front yard to become a yard decoration and to rust and have things grow up all around it. That's not how God treats creation. He hasn't cast creation aside. He doesn't just leave creation there to, to rot and to rust and deteriorate. No, the Lord will gather up 
all this twisted and marred and broken, and it says he is going to make it new. Behold, I am making all things new. Then he makes this statement. He says, write this down. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, I remember, I think this is funny, because this is Revelation 21, right? I mean, 20 chapters, John's like, he's writing, and then God says, write this down. And John's kind of going, okay. And I remember, I I get it, because I remember, I'm reading a seminary, my New Testament class with my favorite professor in seminary, Dr. David Crutchley, and then he was just like this constant fire hydrant. And I remember sitting in New Testament and just scribbling, you know, my hand is like throbbing. I've got this nasty callus on my hand. I'm just writing as quick as I can write. And then he says, he, he's from South Africa, so I can't talk like he did. He's one of those people that could read the phone book and you go, oh, wow, this is amazing. And he said, now write this down, guys. And I'm like, write this down? I've got like 10 pages of notes. What do you mean write this down? Well, I came to find out that all was important. It was all critical. But when he said write this down, that was like highlight, star, circle. You better know it and have it engraved in the back of your mind. There's still things where he would say write this down that's still in the back of my head today. Because it, was, it had a particular weight to it, a particular importance to it. And so John, he's been writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And Jesus, or God says, now write this down. Bank on it. Don't forget it. Know it. Hide it in your heart. Keep it in your mind. Depend on it. It will happen. It will come to be. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Write it down. Now why? How... how how can we trust it? He says these words are trustworthy and true. Why? Well, because the one who spoke them are trustworthy and true. That's why we can depend on it. It's the same thing if you've read Pilgrim's Progress. Sacred Winds coming up is going to be focused on the Pilgrim's Progress. And it's the, the same thing when, when Pliable comes to Christian. He's asking him more about his experience and, and, and all he's been through. And, and, and he, he wants to know more. And, and, and Christian, he, he asks, or sorry, Pliable asks, he says, So you think the words of your book are absolutely true? And Christian nodded with any doubt and said, Yes, of course. It was made by him who cannot lie. Why can we trust this? Why can we trust what is written down? Why can we know that the words are trustworthy and true? Because the one who wrote them cannot lie. Because the one who wrote them is trustworthy and true. See, so he says, write this down. They're trustworthy and true. What do we write down? It is done. It's done. It is settled. This is what is going to happen. How do we know that? Because God is the creator and the completer of all things. That is who God is. He's the creator. He's the completer. Verse 6, it says, it is done what? I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator. He's the completer. The alpha and the omega in Greek, that's the, the first and the last letter. It's like A and Z, alpha and omega. He is the beginning and the end. He's the original cause. He's the source. He's the origin of all things. And he has determined the end of all things. He has both the authority then to determine the end, and he also has the ability to accomplish it. 
You see, it would be one thing for him to say, you know, this is going to happen, but if he doesn't have the ability, he can't carry it out, but he does. He is God. He reigns supreme. He's exalted. He's mighty. He's sovereign. There's no one as mighty as him. No one mightier than him. He is God, and he alone is God. So he's the creator. He's the completer. He's the alpha. He's the omega, the beginning and the end. He has the authority, and he has the ability. And what is the end? Boom. Everything's annihilated. Boom, everything's destroyed. No, neither of those. That's not what the end is. Restoration. I am making all things new. Restoration. It is not destruction, not annihilation. We can count on that. Why? Because these words are trustworthy and true. Because God is faithful. There's a reason that God says here, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The reason is it's a reminder that God is eternal. He exists outside of time. From everlasting to everlasting. He is God. He is the Alpha and Omega. He he reminds us people of this several times in Scripture. In Isaiah 41.4, God tells Israel, fear not, I am with you. <laughs> All that Israel is in the midst of. He says, hey, don't, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Okay. And that's comforting. Why? Because he reminds them, he says, I the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Or in Isaiah 44.6, He tells the people, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You may think that these rulers are powerful. You may think that their gods are intimidating, but you need to remember that I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. I'm it. I am the one true God. When we begin Revelation, at the very beginning, we see a statement, Revelation 1.8, a statement from God. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's who I am. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. In verses 6 through 8, we, we have a, a word of judgment spoken from the Lord. We're familiar with this as we've looked at the the parable of the weeds. We looked at the parable of the net in Matthew 13 over the last few weeks. We're we're familiar with this idea to understand that God will indeed judge. You understand there will be a judgment between believers and unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous. and, And the believers will be sent to heaven, unbelievers cast to hell. And so we see that here, this idea of judgment. It's a certain word of judgment. And what I would just point out to you here is, is that that which Jesus warned about in the parable of the weeds and the, the parable of the net, he, he warned us about that and he'll continue to warn us about it as we come back into Matthew at the end of summer. But that which he warned about it, about, God pronounces here with certainty at the final day. It is done. It is done. He who is faithful declares that it is done. So we can count on the fact that it actually will be done. He has declared himself to be faithful. He's shown himself to be faithful. So we know he's faithful and what he says he will do. And what we have to see here is when we come to this point, 
And we look at, if you backed up, and you, you look at Revelation 20, 11, the judgment before the great white throne is what mine has it headed as in my, in my Bible, but the, the judgment based on the book of life. And we see that, and we come here, and this judgment here that's cast the, the, the one who is thirsty, talking about believers, and then those who are unbelievers. When this point is reached, there is no second chance. There's, there's no moment where you or I will be able to say, you know, let me, let me kind of, give me just a second, let me reconsider my opinions, kind of where I'm at on this. We don't say, hey, can I, um, I tell you what, I kind of missed it on that. Let me, um, I'll pitch in a um, little extra of my savings and that, that boat that I just, I mean, have you seen this boat? I'm going to pitch that in, and I'll even, I'll even do this too. I'm going to just, like we can negotiate with God at that point. There's no negotiating an alternative. There's no second chance. There's no reconsidering at that point. It's either one or the other. The line's been drawn. The judgment is upon you at that point. Now, I would just point out here, the believer's First there in, in verse 6, talks about believers, the second portion of it. says, to the thirsty I will give them the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, I will have, or the, to, the one who conquers will have this heritage. Or some, the New American Standard says, I believe says the, the one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. So the, the believers referred to in two ways here. First, we're referred to as the one who longs for righteousness, to the thirsty. You remember Matthew 5, 6? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6? He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, here he says, listen, to the thirsty, right? To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without Payment. The ultimate satisfaction of the one who thirsts for righteousness, who thirsts for God, is found in eternity as, the, the, as, as all of our, our thirst is quenched, right, by the Lord, is quenched by the Lord, the thirst I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. If you just look right over to Revelation 22, we see this described. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. He goes on to describe it. Those who thirst for righteousness will be satisfied in the presence of God. But believers are also described as the ones who conquer to the one who conquers, he says. The one who conquers will have this heritage. He's talking about the one who faithfully perseveres to the end. Well, what things will he inherit? Well, certainly you would understand he would inherit the, the right and the blessing to drink from the water of life without payment. I think it's noteworthy also to think about at the beginning of Revelation when Jesus writes his message, gives John a message for the seven churches. 
You remember this? Beginning in Revelation 2, he has a message about each church, very custom to each church. And, and in those letters to the churches, he ends every one. And he says what? To the one who conquers, I give this. So in Revelation 2, 7, the one who conquers will be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And in 2.11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In 2.17, he says, I will give the one who conquers hidden manna, a white stone with a new name written on it that he alone knows. In 2.26, the one who conquers, I will give the authority over nations. It's talking about dominion, that God will give dominion to his people. In 3.5, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Never. 3.12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He'll be established among God's people. 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He will delegate ruling authority to his people. To the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, he will inherit these things. He'll be given these things. How blessed are the children of God in the presence of the King. What glorious blessing awaits us. Those of you who I can call brother and sister because we're Christians, a part of the family of God. What blessing awaits. Those of you who are unbelievers, verse 8 refers to unbelievers. We can't make the mistake of thinking about heaven, talking about heaven, and just absolutely neglecting hell. So our society likes to do. We're fine talking about heaven, but don't bring up hell. God consistently speaks of the hope of glory to believers and warns of the coming judgment to unbelievers. We see that. We see here the completion, the fulfillment of what Jesus warned about in the parables. We heard the portion that is given to believers. Unbelievers have their portion as well. In verse 8, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm going to leave that there for today because next week we'll kind of flesh this out, look more at it. And so what I want us to do is we consider verses 5 through 8, I, we kind of zoomed in. I want us to zoom back out now. What, what's the purpose? Why do we do this? Why are we looking at this passage the, the reality is we need to know, we have, need to have a big view and an understanding. We think about heaven. We need to have an understanding of what God states from the throne in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. The, the course of history is moving toward this. All of history is moving to this moment. Where God says, I am making all things new. As I want to close our time with just a reminder of the, the narrative of Scripture, the, starting in Genesis and how we come all the way to Revelation, that, that everything in history is driving towards this reality that God is making all things new. One theologian, Wayne Grudem, said this. He said, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever. But in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live 
with God there. Is Grudem correct? Should we have a, should we have a larger view than, than this just kind of celestial view of the heavenlies that we're not real sure and it's just hard to wrap our head around? Is there something more? Is there something we should understand from Scripture? What does it mean that he's going to make all things new? What does it mean that all Scripture will be driving towards this in Revelation 21? Well, let's think about that just for a moment. What do we find in Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis 1 and 2, we had the creation. It's what we heard in our, our time of Scripture reading that, that Bruce read to us, right? That, that God made all things, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and he does, and when he gets to the end of that, what does he declare? He looks at his creation, he steps back, and he says, oh, it's very good, and he rests. He rests from his work. He, he sees his creation. It's very good. God and man are in perfect fellowship. There's no sin. There's no death. Work is fruitful and fulfilling. If you don't know that, work is prior to the fall, right? That's an important thing for you to understand. As we work, work is not part of the curse. Work was prior to the fall. And so work was fruitful. It was fulfilling. Relationships were, were meaningful. They were healthy. They were ordered. They were as God intended. Oh, but then we know Genesis 3 comes, doesn't it? The fall where man rebels, turns from God, disobeys God. And sin's penalty was death. And its consequence reached to every corner of creation. Every aspect, every part of creation felt the consequence of man's rebellion. And perhaps man, perhaps man greatest of all. For man is banished from the garden. Our relationship, our intimate fellowship with God broken, forbidden to eat from the tree of life. So we see man living in sin. We see him continuing to sin as Cain and Abel, the first example, and we continue to see the depravity of man leading up through Noah. God floods the earth. We come to Babel. Do you remember Babel? The Tower of Babel? Do you know what the people were wanting there? There's more than just a tower. It's not as though they went out in the field and they just erected this big tall, tall tower like a cell phone tower to see how high we could get it. No, the people are desiring and longing for a city. They want a city. They could all come together and they're going to build this tower. He says, come, Genesis 11, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. But God scattered them. Why? Because it was for the pride of man, the fame of man, not the glory of God. But this longing and this desire for a city would continue to work its way out and be seen throughout Scripture. You remember when the people of Israel, they captured Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem called? The city of David. Zion. Zion, the, the city of David. And throughout the Old Testament, the, the people long for and they look to Zion as a place of worship, as a place of God's dwelling, the holy city. All throughout, they look to the city of David. They expectantly look for God and that they would dwell with God, not just in the city of David, Jerusalem, but it would be a forever, eternal reign of God. They longed for a better city. They longed for the salvation of God. They longed for that. They wanted it. 
Then you come over to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, 17 to 19, as the people continue to work out, and they, they, they're, they're sent, and they're punished by the Lord, they're disciplined by the Lord. And God speaks this word to them towards the end of the book through Isaiah. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. He goes on to fill them with hope, saying, I will create a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. I will renew, I will restore the city. Continues to speak of that throughout Revelation, I mean Isaiah 65 and 66. You get into the New Testament and you know, the Gospels and then Peter, the Acts, after Christ has died and rose and ascended back to heaven to reign at the right hand of the Father and the apostles are ministering and they are filled with the Spirit. They're boldly proclaiming the Gospel, the truth, the resurrection of Christ. In Acts 3, Peter stands to preach, to teach, Listen how he refers to the return of Christ. He refers to the return of Jesus, God sending him, who heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Christ will return, Peter says, to restore all things, to renew, not to destroy. Not to annihilate, but to restore all things. Paul understands the same idea of, of restoration. We get to, to Romans 8. In Romans 8, he describes and explains the, the, the impact, the consequence of sin and, and brokenness upon creation. Is creation longing, longing for renewal, longing to be restored? He writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation longing for its renewal. Longing for restoration. Longing for redemption. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, writes this. Hebrews 11, you remember, is the hall of faith. Some people call it. It's just a saint after saint after saint who lived by faith and ex just demonstrated great faith in the Lord. And he talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, he writes about them. What are they looking for? What is their faith looking forward to? He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar, from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus made it, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. He's prepared for them a city. Do you see? Throughout Scripture, this idea of restoration, this idea of city, this longing for city, this renewal in the Lord. Hebrews 13, 14 says, We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The city that is to come, we look ahead and we, we look forward to the city that is to come. Peter writes of it in 2 Peter 3.13, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Looking ahead, longing for that what will come. And we come to Revelation 21. We read earlier, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth that passed away in the sea was no more. And I saw what? The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't have all the answers about heaven. I'm just going to bust your bubble now. (laughs) I don't know everything that awaits us. But God has not left us uninformed. God has told us what we need to know to look forward not to annihilation, not to this vague sitting around on clouds with a harp, but to rejoicing in Him, exalting Him, living lives of worship, perfect fellowship with Him. A city, new heavens, a new earth, What we know is that it will be glorious and new and restored as it was supposed to be. Oh. To the one who is thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God. And he will be My son. Relationship. Restored. Reconciled. Redeemed. What does it mean? What does it look like for God to restore? What does it mean that he would make all things new? Well, I would say, first of all, it's more than this eternal, heavenly hymn sing or night of worship. It's more. It's it's, it's more. God's creation that was marred will be renewed. War and brokenness and chaos in our world will be brought to peace. Man who was banished from God's presence in the garden will once again dwell in his presence. God and man's broken relationship will be fully and finally reconciled in a perfect, unhindered fellowship. The man, it means that the man who exchanged the glory of God for created things will again behold the inexpressible glory of God in full radiance. 
It means the brokenness of sin will be mended, the presence of sin destroyed, the chaos of sin brought into harmony of righteousness. It means that God's marred image in man will be restored, that every enemy of God will be vanquished, that our every sorrow and our every grief will be evaporated and overwhelmed by the joy inexpressible of the presence of God. It means that suffering will be stilled and joy will abound. It is glorious. There's so much more. There's more than we can comprehend. Our God is great. What a glorious day that'll be. What a glorious day it'll be. May God set our gaze upon Him. May, May we look upward to Him and not be so captivated by the things of the world, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. But may we look heavenward towards Him. May may that be our prayer that that through the studies we think about heaven that we would see the beauty of God's plan to restore all things. He didn't just cast creation aside. He didn't give up on us. Man rebelled and and instead he, He is restoring all things that we would sing of His salvation. Isn't that a glorious thing? There's not going to be sin. There will be no presence, power of sin that will not be in in heaven. But in the midst of that, I don't know how this is going to work, but in the midst of that, we will gather around the throne. We will sing of what? We will sing about our salvation, of the grace of God. We will declare His salvation, the work of Him, the Lamb of God. We will have an awareness, even though the sin is not present, it's not powerful, we will know that it's all by His grace that we're there. What a glorious day that's going to be. May, may the study will, it will just grow our longing for eternity. That our greatest longing wouldn't be, I don't want to miss this. I don't, want to, I don't want to miss out on that. I remember right before Steph and I got married, I remember literally praying, God, please don't come back before I get married. <laughs> How immature. Some of you guys are there right now, I understand. The glories... The glories of being in eternity with God Almighty is going to far flood that. It's going to overwhelm us. Poof, gone. Set our gaze upon that. Set our gaze on the better city that awaits. Not on how nice my house looks or how shiny my car is, but on the city that awaits. I, I, I pray that through going through this, we'll, we'll consider all that God has before us and it would cause us to, to persevere, that our faith would be emboldened and strengthened and steadied, that we would persevere through the trials of life, setting our gaze on the new heaven, new earth that awaits in glory. The story is told of Florence Chadwick, who in 1952, she had already swam the English Channel and she set out to swim from Catalina Island to California in the Pacific Ocean. And the day in which she was going to do this turned out to be very cold and, and foggy. And she, she starts out swimming. And it was so cold and foggy that she couldn't even see the boats beside her. She just felt like she was swimming alone. She'd been swimming for 15 hours. And at that point, she was exhausted She couldn't make it anymore. She started begging, let me out. Get me out. I can't do it. I can't do it. Get me out. Her mom was in one of the rescue boats, or guide boats. And her mom beside her was appealing to her and and encouraging her, keep on, keep on, keep on. She kept on and on, and she just couldn't. So they pull her out, get her into one of the guide boats. And she sees the shore, not even a half a mile away. Not even a half a mile away. 
at her press conference the next day. They were asking her about it, and she said, all I could see was fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. God has set the shore before us. He's told us. Behold, I'm making all things new. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. A new city. The glories of which we can't wrap our minds around. The splendor and majesty will cause our knees to tremble. Our eyes to weep at the grace and beauty of the Lamb of God, our Maker. He said it before us. And life is foggy. Life is cold. Life is hard. Let us not lose sight of what God has told us. May we ever run towards the imperishable crown. May we press on towards the golden shores of heaven. May we set our gaze above and live our lives for God's glory. Let's pray. God, as we begin to just turn our attention over the next few weeks to what you've revealed in your word of eternity, God, I pray that you would lift our gaze to you. That, God, you would steady weak needs, you would strengthen our faith, that you would comfort us, that you would draw our heart's affections to you, Lord, rather than the things of the world. God, you would give us these glimpses of what awaits through the truth of your word, Lord. God, fill us as believers with inexpressible joy in your plan, in your purposes, your providences. And God, I pray for friends gathered today, God, who are unbelievers, who come and they, they have no certainty of eternal life. They have no assurance that, God, their portion is a lake of fire, punishment, damnation. Lord, I pray that you do a great work of salvation in their lives, God, that they would repent from their sins and they would trust in you, Lord. God, would you please bless this study? God, for your glory, if our good, sanctify us by your word, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.